hey, if you're listening to this, you're about to listen to uh, a lecture from my class, biology slash psychology, 2606, Introduction to Behavioral Neuroscience for the fall term here at Algoma University. I'll be your host, Dave Broadbeck. I hope you get something out of it, but as I've said many times before, the real hope here is that my students get something out of it. If you do, well, that's also good. Oh, if you are one of my students, that definitely, you know, I'm starting to ramble. Without further ado, here's some intro music and then, you know, me talking about brains. Okay, so uh, today will be the last... <laughs> I keep thinking of things and I decided not to say them. Uh, today will be the last class uh, that I... Where we have sort of new content. Let's say that. I hate the word content. I should use that. Uh, but we can still do review on Monday for the final exam, which is on a Friday at night. I had nothing to do with it. Not happy. Not sad either. But, you know, it's Friday night. Ready to fly. Assume the edibles will be kicking in. Um, he said, kind of jokingly. So, I would never do that for work. So remember, the final has. I and final. It's really similar to everything you've read into before. Four definitions of 10, so you tend to choose from, you need four of them, that gives you 20 points. There's a diagram. What's it a diagram of? Excellent question. And there's an essay question, which has two essays halfway. So that's 60. Um, this should, you take a look at that, you should say that's about, that's the same as test one. Uh-huh, it's the same number of marks, which should tell you it's, it shouldn't surprise you if it takes you an hour and 20 minutes. You have two hours, you'll have two hours, but you, and you can use them. And I won't think any less of you if you do, maybe a little. I kid, some of these are jokes. But I can tell you that um, for the most part, uh, vast majority of you will be done earlier. Don't feel bad if, you're, if it's an hour and 10 minutes, you think, I'm, I'm done, well, you're done. Uh, these definitions, they aren't only on the stuff since the last test, but it concentrates a little more heavily on that, because I have a test to show stuff. This is a diagram, and that's all I'm going to say about it. It is a diagram. <laughs> this essay question, Today I'm going to talk about some big themes in the course, what I think are the big themes, and I think that if you use those as a study guide, you look at those themes as you're studying all the material, you say to yourself, oh, that fits in with that, that fits in with that, I think it'd be fine with the essay. Because the essay is a way for me to see that you put everything together in the course. Okay. So that's, do I have any questions about that? I guess I think it's the 16th thing. 7 p.m.? <laughs> that wasn't my idea. So have fun with that. Uh, I don't know what I'll be doing. I guess I'll be watching TV at the front with my iPad. <laughs> uh, as usual, at a final exam, I want you to sit one person apart, that kind of thing. Just. I think we'll be able to, because I don't know if any other exams are scheduled at the same time in NW200. If so, I think that's where it is. Is that right? Yeah. If it is the case, I'm sure it'll all be figured out. Um, you know how fun these things work. 
<laughs> Maybe I do. Any questions? <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I have this horrible tendency to say, well, this is something you should already know, and I'm sure you all know this, but any questions? Which makes means like, so I think you're dumb if you have any questions, which I don't. I'm going to stop doing that. I've been doing it since I was 29, and I'm not 29. All right. So, like I said, what I'm going to talk about today is the big themes, and the, when you are studying, the essay question will fit perfectly with this. So, the first thing is, frankly, the, the, the human nervous system and nervous systems generally are counterintuitive. They don't make a great deal of sense. They just don't make a great deal of sense. Um, would you design a nervous system like this? Like, would you put a, make, do motion and object perception separately? I don't know, but I, I'm not an engineer. But I don't think so. I think I would analyze these things not separately, but together, maybe? What do you think? That, that's my feeling on this. It just seems odd. Now, it doesn't seem odd when you realize that, you know, you start out with a where visual system and then you build on that, and that's how evolution works. Right? That makes sense. But if we think of it purely from like an engineering perspective, it actually doesn't. Would you do understanding of language separately from language production? Uh, I don't know. It just seems an odd choice one would make if one were engineering this thing, when we're building it. So it's counterintuitive. And one of the things about being counterintuitive, it reminds you that it's an evolved system. But it also reminds you, I think, or it should at least, that we have localization in the brain. So, Different areas do different things. So that shouldn't surprise you. Um, though that it's counterintuitive, it should also tell you that sometimes you just got to look and I got to memorize this, <laughs> which kind of sucks. But like I said, one of the reasons it's counterintuitive is because it's an evolved system. This is not a system that was designed by anybody. It was a system that is built through the happenstance of evolution by natural selection. So it's counterintuitive because it's an evolved. Um, and selection works with what it has. When I talked about consciousness the, uh, just the other day, I mentioned how there's this notion from uh, Danny Pavanelli. Uh, Pavanelli and Kant have this notion. Because Danny does really cool work. Pavanelli and. Um, this is the idea that our consciousness, our self-awareness, whatever the hell you want to call it, evolved from our three-dimensional spatial system that we have, the spatial module I talked about just the other day, showed some of my own work, and how we had, it used to be that like, you know, our ancestors before the chimps and us split off about seven million years ago. Lived in trees, so you have to know where you're going and where you've been. And now you don't need that because you're on the ground. Because for some reason we stopped being in trees. Now we have this system that, that, that does this, where am I, where am I going, where I've been. It doesn't have to do three-dimensional navigation so much anymore, so now it can be taken over by something else. This happens in evolution. Feathers evolved not as 
an adaptation for flight. They evolved as an adaptation for keeping young warm. It's almost certainly the case. There's a small little thing change that had to happen to a feather to make it a flight feather. It's an extremely small change. And then you end up with animals that can fly, birds, which are dinosaurs. You know that birds are actually dinosaurs. If you don't believe that, well, first of all, it's true, so you don't care if you believe it. But the second thing is that if you don't believe it, go challenge a series of Canada geese to a fight. You'll realize you are in, you are talking to dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, so that happens, you know, that's, that's got a name, that kind of thing, revolution takes something and does something else with it. It's actually called an, not an adaptation, but an exaptation. Exaptation. And the greatest example of this, again, is feathers. But I think that's what happened, again, with our... The best, the best solution I've seen, the best notion I've seen is this Papanoia Kant's idea that it has something to do with this system we have, that we had for going from tree to tree, and we all go from tree to tree. So understanding function can help us understand mechanisms. So because it's an evolved system, we can look at the function of things. And I, I said, I think, the very first you know, formal lecture of the class, not, not the high my name is Dave class, but the one after that, that to truly understand a biological characteristic, we have to understand its cause and its function. We have to understand not only how it works moment to moment, but what does it accomplish for the animal in its lifetime? As I say here, Knowing that something um, is done separately from something else, whatever that's, those somethings are, so uh, production of language and perception of language, motion and color, all these kind of things, helps us understand um, that we might be looking for different systems, right? So spatial cognition is different than temporal cognition, knowing, keeping track of time. There are three. Yeah, let's go with that. There are three modules that exist in almost all animals. Time, space, and number. Every animal tested keeps track of time the same way and makes the same kind of mistakes. Every animal tested keeps track of spatial information more or less the same way. And number, knowing number, I'm not saying being able to manipulate like we do, but some animals do, uh, squirrel monkeys pretty clearly can add. And I mean accurately add, like three and five is eight, that kind of thing. Um, time, space, and number are characteristics of the universe, but especially time and space. So everything has time and space. Everything keeps track of time and space and represents it somehow. And a lot of animals represent it. Um, when we see how that we have these separate modules, we can then think, well, maybe we have separate brain regions. Because if you have separate function, you probably have separate mechanisms. Make sense? We learn a lot about the function of nervous systems from dysfunction. And those of you who will be taking uh, human neuropsychology, a lot of that course is about you know, damage and stuff like that. So. so we know that V1 sends out information because we know about blindsight. Right? We know about people who have damage to V1 and they still put their hands in the right shape. So we know then that V1 must be doing something to the, for the conscious experience of seeing, but it isn't 
the only thing there because people still reach out and put their hand in the right shape. We know the case with the artist, remember with V4, and that guy got um, carbon monoxide poisoning, if I remember correctly, and he couldn't imagine or see color anymore, so we know that V4 does color. We can then look and see where the projections are and see, oh, blobs do color. I see that, because it connects, it projects to, to V4. Oh, from blobs. Oh, ever neat. So we learn a lot of these things from dysfunction. We knew early on about localization because of people like Mary Rafferty. Remember that, that Bartholomew guy had Mary Rafferty and had her, she had the, the, the thing on her skull and then he was just poking around in her head. The guy in Columbus, Ohio in the 1800s and even in the 1800s people went, dude, that's kind of unethical. And then later, you know, Wilder Penfield Canadian neurosurgeon who did that, but also did it while he was treating people. It wasn't just like he was digging around. Oh, look, you're sick. Your brain, your brain, it's right there. I'm going to poke at it. Wasn't doing that. That's my impression of Bar Bartholo. Um, whereas Wilder Penfield was actually doing neurosurgery, trying to help people. So we learned a lot. That was because of dysfunction. We learned about localization. And HM, that's a long time back. I talked a little bit about HM. And HM is this case who had his hippocampus lesion because he had epilepsy and the seizures were starting in his hippocampus. So Scoville, who's the neurosurgeon, uh, removed his hippocampus because it was 1954 and people didn't know what hippocampus did yet. And suddenly HM wakes up and he's, his epilepsy's gone. Yay! He also can't learn anything. Well, I shouldn't say that. He can't. He can learn new things. He just can't remember learning. So when Brendan Milner took him into the lab, and she did so the eraser here, there's pretty so the classic cast. One of the first things she did is she did this. So Got a piece of paper that has a star on it. It's a star inside it. And it's up against a mirror. So this up here is a mirror, okay? And the idea is you look in the mirror, you don't look at the paper, and you try to draw it in there. It's very hard for a couple of minutes, then it's easy. It's hard because left is right and up is down. It's, it gets difficult. But you learn that very quickly. And this is very easy to quantify because all I have to do is count how many times I cross over the line. Right? And that's how accurate I am. That's pretty good. You can do that. You can count those. It's an easy way to do it. You could also do time, whatever, but counting the number of line crosses is pretty standard. And you, got, you know, HM gets good at this. Like any of you would, in a couple of minutes. Now, if I brought you into the lab tomorrow and said, you do this, you'd go, oh, yeah, that thing. And you did it again. No problem. Maybe a little, again, maybe for 10, 10 20 seconds. Like, oh, yeah, right. Left is right, up is down. I got it. Same thing happened with HM, except he had no memory of ever learning this. In fact, he had to be reintroduced to Brenda Milner, the woman who was testing him. He was 101 years old and she'd get a freaking Nobel Prize before she dies because they don't give out posthumous Nobel Prizes. He remembered. He didn't remember learning this, but he was able to, 
to, to show that he remembered it. So he couldn't tell you he learned it. He didn't remember Dr. Milner. Yet, he showed persistence of learning, which is memory. And that tells us something. That tells us there are two separate memory systems, at least. One is for self-referential information, we call it episodic memory. And the other thing we would call today procedural memory, learning a task. You can teach HM things. He just never remembered learning them. He recognized Brenda Milner because he worked with him for years, but he never knew who she was. And his, his memory, this is amazing things we've learned about memory. If you take the memory course with me next term, Psych 3717, though don't, there's a lot of people signed up. Um, I'm kidding, feel free. But I'm kind of not kidding, I don't want to mark that much stuff. Uh, kidding! The cool thing is that it tells us that when, 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 when he would see Brenda Milner, he would say things like, haven't we met somewhere? And she'd say, yes. Do you know where we met? And of course, the answer to that is, I've been studying you since 1954. And he only died in 2008. So, but his answer was always things like, did we go to school together? Are you in movies or something? Are you on TV? Those are good guesses, by the way. Our cognitive systems make guesses all the freaking time. Where do I know that from? Where do I know you from? And your, your system's like, well, if it's somebody familiar, where would I know familiar people from who I can't place their face? Could be somebody I work with, could be somebody I went to school with, could be somebody on TV. Those are great guesses. They're all wrong in that case, but they're good guesses. And usually our memory system's pretty good at that. Right? There was a thing that happened in 1972, I can think back to this, in September 28th, when Canada was playing the Soviet Union, the hockey series. And the whole country stopped. It's a different time. You know, it's, we all got out of school to go down to the school gym to watch the game on big TVs. Big TVs in 1972 were this big. And with 38 seconds left, a goal was scored and Canada wins this, this series against the Soviet Union. It was a huge thing. It's the first time that the professionals in the National Hockey League had played an international game. Our team, I like that. The series was tied, it was Cold War tension, it was pretty amazing. And I remember this like it was yesterday. I was in grade two and I was watching it. I was sitting there and when the goal was scored, and to people about my age, ask Paul Dupuis where he was when the goal was scored. He'll know exactly what you mean. Get younger than that, maybe something else. I remember hugging the little girl beside me. You don't tend to hug little girls when you're, when you're seven, when you're a boy, because you know, that's how you get cooties. So, you don't touch girls. Weird. Ew, girls are weird. But in my memory, the girl beside me, it can't have been her. And I know it can't have been her because the girl beside me lived in Sudbury and I was in Toronto. But the first friend I had who was a little girl who I remember, obviously, was a girl who lived across the street from me in Sudbury when we moved there. She's in my memory. It wasn't her. <laughs> but my memory's making a really cool guess. So, Jeff can tell us that because of his dysfunction when he says, 
that tells us about the confabulation that happens. It's very cool. So this function, and in my case, the dysfunction is just that my, my memory's wrong. It's not some problem with my cognitive architecture here. With HM, he's got a whole bit removed. The campus then is important in creating episodic memories. All right, questions on that? It's Paul Henderson from Phil Esposito and Elon Cornway. Yeah. 38 seconds. <laughs> I swear to God, it's like it's yesterday. It's so weird. Now, another thing that's important here is we've got a lot of, I've talked a lot about non-human work to understand human work. It's some, a lot of us do stuff without, with animals because it's cool. When, my, when I first met my, my mother-in-law, she said to me, uh, she said it's French, but I'm not going to do an impression of her. She said, so your work of understanding memory in, in birds, is that so you can help people that have Alzheimer's? I said, I don't know. I don't really care. I'm doing it because I wanted to know how the universe works. Just a little tiny slice, I want to know how the universe works. If somebody, if it helps somebody, great, but they don't care. So a lot of animal work gets done just because. But when you think about Galvani, right, with the, remember the frog? And in the lightning bolt. And remember Bud Levy, remember the frog? Frogs got a bad deal in neuroscience, didn't they? Get cut open, things poured on their hearts, hooked up to lightning uh, rods. Wild. But that, was, that told us some important stuff. All the lesion stuff, looking at with non-humans, if you, like I can't take any of you into a lab and, and, and decide to remove part of your brain. Now and then it happens with sort of experiments in nature, those experiments, those, those cases I talked about. It also happened with HM that was on purpose. It was done for a, with the best of intention. It's not the best of it turned out to be the best result. So lesion work with animals can tell us a lot. What about blocking long-term potentiation, right? That told us a lot about how important that long-term potentiation is important in memory. It's not the only thing, but it's important. I told you about cooling and warming parts of the brain early on. It's in my, uh, my daughter's work, actually. Shutting down parts of the brain just by getting it so cool that it can't work. And then warming it back up, so reversible lesions. And there's other ways to do this, too. Um, I partly talked about the work my kid did because it's my kid and I think it's cool and it's better than anything I've ever done in my life. Now, yeah, the thing is, that's all we want to call it. This is invasive, though. It's to animals, and we'll probably tend to work, people don't worry about it as much. But there's also non invasive stuff. There's a lot of stuff about visual fields. So, remember, I said this if I give you a, a line drawing to your left visual field, it'll take you longer to, to name it than if I give you a drawing to your right visual field. Because your left hemisphere does more linguistic processing. Your right hemisphere does spatial processing. They all do both things, but language's meaning of, of language tends to be a left hemisphere thing. So visual field stuff, that's a great example. That's completely non-invasive. You didn't have to take anybody into a, you didn't have to you know, do anything to their heads. The spatial cognition stuff that I talked about that was my stuff just the other day. 
right? That's surely not invasive. I talked about the, is that, what if this is my next point? No, <laughs> good. <laughs> uh, I talked about the stuff that I did with the uh, pigeons and transferring information from one hemisphere to another. I did that completely with other people. Without, we didn't go inside the animal's head. A lot of neurological tests. And I was telling you this about how a very common neurological test is the neurologist or, or, or a neuropsychologist takes out their keys and says, what is this? And people can name it, but they, what it does, but not what it's called. That's a thing for opening doors. What's that? I don't know, you know, apparatus for unlocking things. You mean keys? Yeah, that's right. What is it? Well, it's a thing for unlocking doors. And it's one of those things that's hard to believe until you see it. I did it with my father when he was sick, and it was almost funny. Like, I didn't really want to laugh at my father because he had a brain tumor. It's kind of funny. <laughs> it's a little funny. 14 years ago, I can laugh a little bit about it down. Look at the MRI. I talked about this. I talked about how you could read D1, and it has been done. And they can see, it's getting to the point where you can tell maybe 100 by 100 pixels what someone's seeing. You know that it will happen, that the better we get at modeling, the more, the more computer power, the more fine-tuned MRIs we have, we're eventually going to get to a point where we can make a pretty darn good guess about what someone's seeing. We should be able to add motion. And considering that when you dream, you hallucinate, you see? And considering if you're in an MRI, I actually can watch and see that your, your, your visual cortex is firing, you're actually experiencing seeing. So what that means is eventually we'll be able to record our own dreams. It's not happening anytime soon. You'd need an MRI to do this. But it will happen. Somebody will do it first as a, as a thing to just, you know, 10,000, you know who's going to do that? Elon freaking Musk will do that. Charge you a million dollars a piece, and then, I don't know, something to do with wrecking Twitter. But people will pay money and they'll get their dreams. Uh, and they'll upload them to DreamTube, and there'll be a series of racist comments. Because that's basically, oh, and things about Obama still because that's basically YouTube comments. And then about 15 comments in, someone will say first. That, that, that's YouTube comments. Oh, and then, oh, I work from home, and then a long list of things about how you can, there'll be that too, there's also, also those. The nervous system, you may have, have you heard this before maybe? The nervous system is hierarchical and parallel. Which is, I mean, that's contradictory. I remember I was trying to explain this once to uh, Dr. Shep, to Brandon Shep, friend of mine, a colleague, and I, I mentioned this, and he said, how is that even possible? And I said, because it's not a plant, Brandon. Plants suck, and they're boring. Plants are stupid. They don't do anything interesting. They suck. Animals have nervous systems, which are hierarchical and parallel. The hierarchical part is obvious. Vision, like... <laughs> The stuff we talked about with vision, about how it goes in one place, and then, 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 all these steps, that's a hierarchy. That's what a hierarchy is, right? It has steps. But it's also parallel. Because you say two, two streams, right? Dorsal ventral stream. They're happening at once. That's parallel. The parallel part, I think, fits in with the idea of cell assemblies. 
and the idea of patterns of activation, right, about how all these neurons being active right now means that's a red triangle, right, or some such. And we have a central nervous system, a peripheral nervous system, a autonomic nervous system. Right? And the central nervous system has what? It's got the cerebellum, the brain, the spinal column. Autonomic nervous system has the, the, the sympathetic and parasympathetic subsection, subsystems. Oh, that's, para that's parallel and that's all happening at once. I'm able to talk and walk at the same time. Obviously, things are happening. It's not just like one thing after the other. Things are happening at once. Questions on that? Okay. Uh, just to wrap it up, and this will wrap up my. This is the last lecture I give in this class. Yeah, because on, and again on Monday, if you want, I'll be here. I can hang out. I'll come. But if nobody has anything to say, I'm just going to leave. <laughs> so if nobody shows up and has any questions, I'll go back to my office and drink more coffee. But if you come, I'll hang out here. And if you have questions, I can answer them. If, by the way, if you come a little late and you go, oh, it must have ended, but I had a question, you come upstairs to my office. I'll answer them. It's also the Facebook group that I set up. Most people, a lot of you join now. There's some stuff in there. Um, I haven't taught this class since 2019. This is the first time I've taught it since then, which is just the way things went. But I've always really enjoyed this class. Uh, it's nice getting to know everybody. Uh, it's nice seeing people from so many different parts of the world. Uh, it makes me, uh, now and then you get sort of jaded about the future, uh, but with some of you guys in charge, it's gonna be okay. So I just wanna say thanks very much. Uh, and it has truly, and it all, it, I, I don't use these words lightly, it has been an honor to teach you, thank you. Does anybody have any questions? Please. Yell at us some more. <laughs> when we what yell? Yeah. I don't know what to yell about. I mean, I can rant about all kinds of stuff, but it's completely not related to the class. <laughs> don't get me started on certain things. That's all you got to say. Yes, please. Uh, when you were talking about like how, like the example of your memory of your childhood, yeah. From Sudbury, is that why like witness testimonies aren't necessarily reliable? One of them. <laughs> yeah, memory's not reliable. It makes guesses. This, remember, it's an evolved system. So it evolved as a way to get food, get mates, and find your way home. That's, that's what it's for. And, and other stuff, sure. So it should fill in gaps. And it should fill in gaps with good guesses. And the fact that I have in my brain the idea that Maria Kostakos, which was the girl's name, was at that watching a hockey game with me in Toronto, except she lived in Sudbury, that's actually my, my, my cognitive system going, yeah, that's probably who it was. And I know it wasn't her. You know what, when you hear the weirdest part of this, I left Sudbury in 1977, and we moved to London. We moved to Brandon Law as a kid. And I went to Western, because I lived in London. It's like, hey, look, there's a university. I guess I'll go there. I mean, you know, it was, I don't care where the hell I went to school which in Canada is a pretty good idea, where you do undergrad doesn't matter. So I ran, I was walking along, so it was the second year probably, yeah, it was the second or third year, second year, I was walking along, um, and you remember Western has like 30,000 students, it's half the size of this city. 
and I, I'm walking along, and I, I, she, I, this, I, this woman says, Dave, and I went, Maria? Because it was her. And we talked for like five minutes, and oh, I didn't know you went to I said, I moved to London, remember? Oh, yeah, of course, blah, 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 you're catching up. And then she said, some friends of mine are having a party tonight, why don't you come? I said, yeah, that sounds fun, sure. So, because I thought, you know, is there drinking? I'm in. So it's sort of my mod. My mod. It's my family crest. <laughs> but uh, yes, our, our, our coat of arms is really just a bottle of gin. But that night, I saw it at the party. It was nice. It was all good. And it's 1985. So she's dressed like someone in 1985. So now in my memory, ever since that day, my memory of a goal being scored in a hockey game in 1972, the woman who's sitting beside me was a girl in memory, except she's now wearing the clothes I saw her in in 1985. She's dressed like a weird little miniature trendy woman from 1985. She can't have those clothes. No, no one dressed like that then. She's dressed kind of like Madonna. In 1985, because basically all the women that went to Western dressed like that. It's wild, right? But it's a good guess. It's an evolved system, so it's a good guess. So it's a, I think it's a great example of why it's evolved and how it's, it's counterintuitive. And like you're right, it tells us that our memories are extremely fallible. Like extremely fallible. I witnessed testimony ask Paul Dupuis. It's almost virtually, it's completely almost garbage. It's just, don't use it. And more and more courts understand that. Yeah. It's a good question. Other things. All right, so if you come on Monday, I'll be here. But if no one comes within about 10 minutes, I'll go upstairs to my office, but I'll be there. And you can always come by and ask me questions. You can always email me. There's the Facebook group. Just want to say thanks again. Really enjoyed this. See you guys. Oh, don't do that. It's my job. You don't have to do that.
So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. Uh, I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved. So you can redistribute this all you want. But if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu- the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then it was called PodSafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music, because... Um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time.